So we come now to the last of our Advent Sundays. Uh, Next Sunday is Christmas. And so far this month, we've encountered hope, peace, and love. And now we come to joy. Joy, of course, is a major theme in the Bible. And both Judaism and Christianity despite nasty um, depictions of them by the enemies of God, are both faiths of great joy. So rather than take you through what the Bible says, I'll let the Bible Project do that. So let's watch this Bible Project video from their Advent series on the theme of joy. So that's a... That's a good overview, isn't it? An excellent overview of joy through the Bible. But when I I sat down and looked at the references to joy in Scripture, I I couldn't help thinking that that there seemed to be a common element to them all. So let's see if with the, the stuff that we've just looked at in the Bible Project, let's see if we can sort of synthesize that and uh, understand what underlies all of this joy. So joy in the Old Testament comes from God's presence in the appropriate operation of nature and human relationships. So, you know, the, the flocks and the, the joy in um, relationships and, you know, being in the right country and stuff like that. God's, it also comes from God's saving power, setting some things right, escaping from Egypt, having justice. And it also comes from the people's confident hope that God will set things right, all things right, in the future. In the New Testament, joy comes from Jesus' presence. And also from the power of his death to save us, setting things right between us and God. And also from our hope in Jesus ultimately setting all things right at his second coming. So can you see a common element there? Anyone got any ideas of of what sort of common element is coming through all of those things? I haven't worded it so that it's obvious, (laughs) so I've made it easy for you. Matthew? Yep, God God and Jesus are in all of it, which is sort of, you know, helps us understand that Jesus is God. Yep, that's a big part of it. Neil? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, so God is with us, God's presence, yep. Yep, yep. So God had a plan and he's working that plan out. Yeah, that's, that's a part of it. These are all good, good steps, I think. Does anyone want, like, going once, going twice? <laughs> yep, yeah. So, 
So we can see in the way that I've structured it, it's it's there is God's God with us, God um, saving us, and God God uh, doing stuff in the future, and our hope for that. Yeah, and that's that's so critical. The way that when I when I thought about it, it seemed to me that that perhaps we can understand biblical joy, and this isn't the only way to understand it, but but. Um, Go with me here, or are you going to find this sermon very frustrating? Um, We could understand biblical joy as an exuberant delight in things being the way they are supposed to be. That is, being in line with God's will and desire, being right. To put it another way, joy is a feeling, a knowing, uh, and a spiritual experience all at once in response to a situation which matches the way we were designed to be. So we can feel joy without everything being right, of course, but at least some important things must be right for us to experience joy. Those could be things that are entirely internal to us, which is why Paul can experience joy in prison. Nothing outside of him is right, but inside and also maybe that some of the relationships that he has, things are right, but lots of other things are wrong. But he experiences joy because of the, those important things that are in line with God's will. Now, unfortunately, we are fallen beings, fallen creatures, <clears throat> beings who have turned away from our purpose and our design. So we can get confused about the way things are meant to be what's truly right. And this creates the sort of unholy joy that we sometimes see in those who are consumed by their own plans and purposes. You know, you might think of um, like Hitler or, or people who, who are, seem to be joyful but joyful in doing wicked things. But most people, most people have enough experience of God's presence to understand what's right. As the Apostle Paul says, they can see his eternal power and divine nature in the things of creation. And so we can be, as C.S. Lewis expresses it, surprised by a holy sort of joy, such as a child's delight in discovery, like discovering a puddle and how much fun they are, or when we achieve a long dreamed for and worthy goal, like graduating from uni or or, or getting engaged or married or, or having a child, or when we make some important step in a valued relationship, like, again, getting engaged or married, um, watching your child grow up. Let's look at one example of joy from the Old Testament and see if it helps us understand joy a bit more and how we might cultivate it in our own lives. Isaiah is a book full of the promise of joy. We've chosen one passage that's so representative of joy that Jesus chose to reference it when John the Baptist was having doubts and asked him if he was really the Messiah. So let's read. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted 
and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory, his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. Foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plough your fields and tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. Now, the first part of Isaiah's prophecy describes the restoration of justice or fairness, which was lost when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and set themselves up and us as the ones who decide good and evil. Now, it so happens that human beings are so bad at that task that we've created legions of poor, prisons full of captives and a world of the brokenhearted. But God is going to fix that. The Messiah, God's servant, will repair all that. Things will be restored to what they should be. Now this restoration isn't just an external one, but an internal one. Israel, God's people, will be made righteous. God's people will turn their hearts back to him and their lives and minds and souls will be rightly ordered once again. God's people will not be subjected to those who rebel against God. Rather, the fruits of rebellion will serve only those who do the right thing. Now, when I read this as a modern person, I find I'm such a rebel and I think our whole culture, we're such rebels at heart You know, we watch Star Wars, the rebels are the good guys. This is hard to hear that the rebels are going to have to serve the the Israelis, the the good guys, the goody two-shoes, as my daughter says. So let me put it this way. Those who want only to lord it over others will instead be the servants of others. And those who care for others will be the ones who are cared for. And we don't like to think about those who rebel against God as uncaring and hurtful, but, but that's actually what they are. By disobeying God, they go against the grain of nature, including their own nature, and end up destroying themselves and those around them. So no matter how much we protest or they protest, 
that it's being done out of love or freedom, the results are anything but. But the result of God's restoration to right living, right thinking, right being, that is eternal joy. Now, obviously, this is in the future. All things, you might recognize that, we're talking about the present. All things, or last night actually, have, have, have yet to be put right. And yet the New Testament talks about experiencing joy in the present, like in a carol's night. But how does that work? Well, the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle Peter has a very pithy explanation that reveals how Isaiah's prophecy is to be fulfilled. My daughter messaging me. So Peter says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. Sorry. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Our joy as Christians comes from our certain hope in salvation. In Jesus, God has already set us right with him and it's only a matter of time before this process is completed. Jesus has set free the captive and comforted the brokenhearted, but he has yet to restore all things to the way they should be. I guess you could say we're like a couple celebrating their engagement. Notice the focus of that that, uh, photo, the engagement ring. The engagement isn't the end goal. Marriage is, right? But the engagement is worthy of joyous celebration because it's a commitment to that marriage happening. It gives the couple great hope in one another. We too await the marriage, the union of Jesus with his church, which of course is us, which will be finally celebrated at the end of time. But until then, we live with certain hope, even better hope than an engaged couple because Jesus is a lot more trustworthy than any guy or girl for that matter. That hope is so certain that it's, it's, it's as if we already have the thing itself and we've just stepped away for a moment. And that certainty that all is right, all is right with the world, fills us with joy. But so often, so often we don't experience this joy, especially 
in the Western church. Think about how Christian marriages fall apart at the same rate as non-Christian. How churches struggle to work together because of property or money or some other issue. How the loss of a child or other suffering can cause people to fall away from the faith. Is it suffering that kills joy in the hearts of Western Christians? Well, Peter continues in his letter, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So suffering actually refines our souls, our, refines our faith. It makes it even more precious and wonderful. It increases our joy. It doesn't reduce it. So what is our joy killer? What do you think? What's, what's, what is it that kills our joy? Neil? Um, worry. <laughs> yep. Basically, Neil's got it in one, I think. <laughs> so that was a short question and answer time. Um, I think it is. It's anxiety. You see, anxiety is focusing on what's wrong instead of on what's right. Joy is a response to sensing that that things are right in a really profound way because they're in line with God's will. But anxiety, on the other hand, focuses on what's wrong. Instead of recognizing what God's already done and what God most certainly will do, an anxious person focuses on what is left to be repaired, as if that's all that matters. We're anxious when we don't trust God, either God's power or his love for us. When we look at the Joneses and we think we're poorly off, we doubt God's love for us. When we are sick or lose someone, which in our society with its dogmatic denial of death, unless it's on our own terms, is a disaster, we doubt God's love. When we look at the chaos of the world, whether it be social decay or natural disasters, we doubt God's power to protect us. When we lose that confident hope in God, which Peter talked about, we lose our joy. Anxiety, worry, is the joy killer. So how can we defeat the joy killer then? How can we cultivate joy in our Western worrying lives? Do you know what that is? Lilies? A field of lilies. That's right. I made sure it was actually lilies and not a field of tulips or some other sort of flower. 
Um, Jesus tells us to look at the ravens, no ravens here, or to consider the lilies. It's God's provision that makes nature glorious, that makes that so beautiful. And God, God loves us more than a bunch of flowers, right? So won't he provide for us? This is what Jesus says in so many ways. And he concludes when he's talking about this in Luke. In fact, we read the Matthew version of this passage last night at the carols. And in the Luke version, he concludes this way. Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things, they do dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. In fact, Jesus, ever a practical thinker, adds a little bit of extra advice. So, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Jesus knows what a distraction possessions are. In our society, we belong to our belongings. Isn't, it our, isn't our society structured around consumerism? Don't we approach everything from a consumer perspective, whether it's material possessions or relationships or, or even accolades? We collect them. We consume them. And what's the result? Not joy or happiness or even contentment, but rather rampant anxiety. That's the curse of our society today, right? As they say, the more you have, the more you worry. Yep, that's right. So we must be ready to let go of our possessions. It doesn't have to be all of them. Unless, of course, you're like the rich young ruler and Jesus asks you to let go of all of them. But there's only one person in the Gospels that Jesus asks that of. But we need to be, able to, we need to be ready to let go of them. They should be our belongings, not us belonging to them. And we need to be able to give them freely to those who need them. Because if our heart is where things grow old, where thieves can steal, we'll always be anxious. But if our heart is in heaven, then we'll experience nothing but joy. Now, the Apostle Paul actually offers a helpful, helpful explanation of how to cultivate our mind in a way that protects us from anxiety. People are always looking for this sort of stuff. And guess what? It's right here in Philippians. Don't worry about anything. Instead, 
pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Focus on what's right. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. If we train ourselves to think on the things of God, to trust, to trust our loving and capable God with all our cares and concerns, then God's peace will replace our anxiety and the joy of salvation will flourish in our hearts. Now, I I must confess that I don't spend enough time in prayer and I think I've failed myself and my family and renew in that way. Indeed, I've been struggling. I've been struggling with anxiety about Italia. For months, because, not because she's horrible, but because I'm not coming to God with my concerns. And so what happens? Anxiety. That's just, that's just the way we work. If you have a vacuum of prayer, anxiety will fill it. But the Spirit can transform me. He can fill that vacuum and he can do that for you too. It sounds trite, but it's not. This is actually the lived experience of millions throughout the last 2,000 years. We too can experience joy in recognising how our hearts are aligned the way that they should be. So just knowing that we're saved, knowing that we are in God's will and looking forward with confidence to his making everything good and right, that is sufficient to give us great joy. I want to finish with a beautiful piece of poetry from about 2,600 years ago at a time of great upheaval and danger. So let's use these words of Habakkuk as our prayer as we come to this time when we celebrate, this time of Christmas, when we celebrate God's great rescue mission. Let us, like Habakkuk, take joy in God's salvation. So let's pray. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, 
the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my fear, my feet, like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen.